Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, the first Irish woman to row solo across the Atlantic, Dr. Karen Weeks, tells us about her green life. And we'll literally go down to earth this week as we give the old sod a turn and talk about peatlands. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. And now it's time to head down to earth, beginning with our weekly news roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk a few about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi. It's been nearly six months now since the last big UN COP climate conference, COP26, and it it looks like there have been several articles that have appeared in the news this week looking at how we're doing since the last climate negotiations. What's the verdict so far? Yeah, well, it's a range of uh, verdicts, of course, as we come up to that six-month anniversary. I mean, the first thing to say is there was a, a paper published in the scientific journal Nature this week the fir- for the first time, actually looked at it and, and said, if all the pledges, if, big if, if all the pledges made by countries are implemented uh, in full and on time, temperatures would rise by 1.9 to 2 degrees uh, Celsius. Now, uh, people like you and me, Kara, will know that that's quite significant, that that's the first time, really, we've seen uh, a calculation of, of pledges that suggest that we could keep global heating to below 2 degrees. Sadly, of course, it's still a long way off trying to keep it below 1.5 degrees. And uh, the same paper suggests that there's now just a 6 to 10% chance of staying under that threshold of 1.5 degrees. Uh, even if, and I say again, big if, if all the pledges made by countries are implemented, uh, all those pledges at COP26. And of course, the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is, for example, whether coral reefs still exist or not, whether it makes a difference between tipping into those positive feedback loops where you get ever faster global heating. So it's still a real concern, but it does show perhaps for one of the first times that we might just slowly be edging towards uh, uh, increased chances that we can try and hold back uh, global warming. But as I said, it's that big if, isn't it? If uh, actually countries deliver on the pledges that they made in Glasgow and if they do it on time. And there's been reports this week saying how Uh, President Joe Biden is really struggling with his climate agenda. He's had many setbacks on this. Uh, There's been a lot of pushback in Congress, of course. Uh, The war in Ukraine has, of course, not helped in any way whatsoever in in causing countries to try and ramp ramp up production of oil and gas. And, you know, one of the earliest acts in office for President Biden was a moratorium on new oil and gas leasing on federal land. But that was reversed after a federal court Walling last summer ordered the administration to restart the leasing program for oil and gas and many, many other problems. So uh, just less than six months on from COP26, uh, we do see that there are real problems in implementing what was agreed there. Yeah, that study that you mentioned by the International Energy Agency, you kind of portrayed it as a, a glass half full or a positive thing that actually we we could stay below that two degrees of warming. But that same study found that carbon dioxide emissions will actually increase 
between now and 2030 by 13%, they predict, rather than going down by 45%, which is, of course, what what all the science has been saying we have to do to, to stay below that two degrees of warming. So it's not really a good news story. And, and one of the things that surprised me about that, that study in Nature you mentioned is that we have 154 UN parties that have committed to goals, new mitigation goals between now and 2030, but actually only 76 of them have put forward uh, plans for beyond 2030 into 2050, which which was actually a surprise to me that that so few countries have put longer term goals on the table in these negotiations. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if if uh, of course there's just a handful of countries, obviously everyone knows about China and India. If they made sort of uh, stronger long term uh, pledges. Uh, that would be make a big difference to that. But I think actually uh, Australia is the one that I think we perhaps should particularly point the finger at. Uh, Australia is a country that could and should be doing better on the pledges it makes. All countries should, of course. We need to see much greater effort from all countries. But there are a few countries, as I said, like Australia, that really stand out for, for not doing more than uh, I think reasonably could be expected of them. And as you say, Cara, the real problem is, is that emissions are still increasing, you know, despite all this effort despite all these discussions and pledges, you know, until we start to see emissions coming down, uh, then a lot of this just seems to be almost kind of academic. And I've long believed that actually when we turn the corner out and we start to see emissions coming down, we might surprise ourselves how quickly they do after that, because you get those kind of uh, feedback loops in a good way in that, you know, when people start to move, say, to uh, electric vehicles and you get a critical mass there, then it becomes ever more encouraging to do so. And the same is when you get those kind of network effects in the energy system as you shift to renewables, the more renewables you have almost in a funny kind of way, the easier it is to shift to them. But we do have to just turn that corner and start start sending emissions downwards rather than keep heading them upwards as they are at the moment. You mentioned the situation in the US and that article that were, that outlined all of this in the Financial Times this week about the White House being forced to defend Biden's climate agenda after setbacks. It, it was pretty scary. It's like, you know, we've talked about the, the energy crisis here on this side of the pond because of the crisis in the Ukraine and the spiraling energy uh, prices. But actually, it's a supersized situation in the US where Biden has been forced to release 180 million barrels of oil from the U.S. emergency stockpile and proceed, uh, plead with oil producers to boost production. So this crisis is is rolling back on a lot of the big uh, climate plans that they've had. And it's looking like he's going to have a huge uphill battle uh, to try and convince the public that he will achieve the climate goals that he set out in his campaign. In fact, I noticed that, that Biden is off to Seattle this week and, and doing a lot around Earth Day to try and reassure voters that he will be able to achieve those climate plans as promised. But it it looks like a huge challenge for them. Yeah, it is an absolutely huge challenge. And and even with the Senate as it is right now, uh, you know, he's still very dependent on one or two votes. And in particular, there's uh, Senator Joe Manchin, who's sort of the most conservative Democrat, if you like, in the Senate and is a key swing vote in that very narrowly divided chamber. And he effectively torpedoed a lot of Biden's legislative climate proposals last year. Uh, you remember all those proposals around what they, it was the $1.75 trillion Build Back Better package. And, um, Matt, you know, to get any of these through, 
uh, Joe Biden is going to need Senator Manchin's backing. Um, but that's actually before we get to the midterms uh, in November this year, Carl, where it's likely that Democrats will do pretty badly um, and will, you know, actually will end up with a, a, a Congress which is even more uh, uh, difficult for Joe Biden to get anything through. So it's not looking great, I'm sorry to say, in terms of the US moving forward on the climate agenda. And that is, as I said, just less than six months after COP26. So really concerning. Yeah. And now, of course, we can't forget that in the middle of a climate crisis, we also have a biodiversity crisis to solve. And we've reported earlier in this show about the possibility of an international agreement on biodiversity that might be on the horizon, similar to our international climate agreements. What's the latest news on that process, Greg? Well, I think the real focus in the debate around biodiversity for a long time is to be been trying to find a target that is kind of equivalent to the 1.5 degree target that we have on climate, which despite all its problems, at least provides that clarity of focus for politicians to negotiate over. And uh, what is good news is we're starting to build some kind of consensus in the international negotiations around a target called 30 by 30, which is the idea that we need to get 30% of global land and sea area set aside for nature by the end of this decade, by 2030. And there's good science behind this. It's kind of estimated that that's the least that is needed uh, to enable biodiversity to start to recover, to restore uh, ecosystem processes. Of course, it can't just be a big lump of 30% somewhere in the world and the rest of the world be trash. It's It really only works if we can try and make 30 by 30 work at kind of all levels, at regional levels, at national levels, and at sort of global regional levels as well. But it's a kind of not a bad yardstick for thinking through how we can try and reverse uh, the loss of nature and the, and the biodiversity crisis more widely. And there is get it building sort of support for this. And the hope is that when countries meet at the Convention on Biological Diversity meeting in China later this year, they will be able to agree on the need to adopt such a target and work towards it. Just the same as with the climate talks, Cara, does that mean it's going to happen? Well, that's another issue entirely, isn't it? 30 more years of of negotiating, I think. Many more years. And and it's worth saying there are some some people that oppose the 30 by 30 target as well, Um, particularly uh, organisations like Survival International say that it it, it might really push, uh, there's a danger that it's a sort of form of eco-colonialism, that it might push uh, local communities off their land to make way for nature and so on. I mean, I think those people that support 30 by 30, like myself, would say, of course, it's got to be done right. Of course, this is about uh, nature alongside people and particularly indigenous communities who are often the very best place to defend nature anyway. Um, But it just shows there's a lot of debate around this. And uh, I think we'll see a lot more attention on it uh, later in the year. And of course, this is all critical to solving the climate problem as well. We can't talk about these issues as if they're completely um, uh, separate. Uh, You know, if we don't preserve biodiversity and particularly things like the Amazon rainforest, we've got no hope in solving climate change either. Yeah. Finally, Craig, one of my favorite topics is in the news a lot this week, this idea of lab-based uh, food or plant-based proteins as alternatives to animal agriculture. It's its sci-fi stuff, but I, I think it might be the future of food production around the world. It appears that a certain fast food franchise on your side of the Irish Sea is paving the way for this. What's going on? Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So Burger King uh, announced this week that uh, it, it is moving ahead with its sort of all vegan London branch trial in Leicester Square. So would you believe there's been a branch of Burger King in Leicester Square in the heart of London 
that has been offering only vegan food for months to test its popularity. Now, it's going to move on from this and go back to its regular menu, but for a whole month, it's just been uh, serving vegan-based food, including plant-based version of its Whopper, as well as a chicken katsu burger and vegan nuggets. And I think it's kind of interesting to do this right at the heart of Leicester Square, isn't it? And there isn't even a choice uh, for, uh, for some of the meat options on the menu there. And uh, I think what's interesting about this is in all the debate about eating less meat, um, I would say that it's actually fast food where you can imagine a reduction in meat consumption. I mean, I'm someone that's worked on this issue for many years. I'm fascinated about it. I still eat meat, you know, but when I eat meat, I want it to be, I want to eat less meat than uh, certainly it used to have done once in the past and for it to be good quality meat when I do so. I'm not worried about meat. Uh, in in a case of fast food and it's really interesting that when you've got if you've got really good alternatives whether it's for burgers or for whether it's uh, vegan sausage rolls that's certainly been very popular in the UK over the last couple of years for example um, then I think people are kind of uh, there, there seems to be quite a good acceptance of this and that could make a huge difference uh, for the environment if it if it scales up and there's lots of different ways to produce this now even sea, uh, seaweed is being used to, to try and produce protein that can be used in meat-free alternatives so I think we're seeing a lot of um, momentum on this agenda I think it's probably more than a fad now because it's been going for a little while but I'm sure it will still be a, a cause deep offence to to many listeners' ears. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned seaweed, and of course we, we have lots of that in both of our countries along the shores here. And I was really surprised to read just how much protein is present in in seaweed. Up to thirty percent of it can be protein, which which makes it possible for it to compete against other big protein sources like meat and soya. So that's really one to watch. And another one that 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 hit the headlines recently in the Financial Times last month was about the possibility of of synthetic milk, essentially. So using the process. Of, of precision fermentation, which has been used in pharmaceutical companies for a long time. And it's a process similar to, to the way we brew beer, but actually creating a, a lab-based milk. And this seems to be uh, something that's happening a lot in startups across the UK and Germany, who've been quoted as saying, we're completely cutting cows from the supply chain. So really something that I think that uh, dairy farmers in particular in Ireland need to be keeping a close eye on. It's a bit of a blind spot for us, but it looks like it's an up-and-coming business. Yes, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, we've had, you know, alternatives, milk alternatives for a while, like oat milk and soya milk and so on, and then perhaps more recently, hemp milk, pea milk, even potato milk. But this was a new one to me, uh, as you say, lab-grown uh, milk uh, through precise fermentation. And I do think it's kind of interesting. I, I think with all of these, it's a little bit like, uh, I would say, it's a bit like how email didn't replace, completely replace post. I think actually uh, lab-grown meat, lab-grown milk, or sort of meat alternatives, milk alternatives, I think there's a potential for them to take a really big role in the market. I don't think they will completely replace uh, milk from cows or indeed uh, meat grown well and to high quality and to high animal welfare standards. But I think the long-term trend is in that direction, and you would hope. And I actually think, don't think it's necessarily bad for farmers because I think um, that what it means is farmers that are producing really good quality milk, really good quality uh, meat uh, uh, will do well out of it. And actually, there's opportunities for others to grow all these other alternatives as well and be part of that solution. Um, but I realise it might be quite sort of frightening to some farmers to hear this, but I do think change is happening. And I personally have been surprised how quickly this kind of move 
to, to meat-free foods or to reduce meat foods at least. And indeed now alternative milks has, has taken hold. Yeah, you mentioned uh, email versus post. Unfortunately, email didn't make our work lives any easier. So no. I'm not sure if this <laughs> will make our, our food lives or our dietary lives any easier either. But it's definitely something to watch. Thanks for the rundown on the planet's weekly big news, Craig. Thanks, Carl. I'll speak next week. Absolutely. After the break, we'll clear up all confusion about the turf wars raised in Ireland this week. Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. Tunes you to say a few words. Second of all, in relation to peat briquettes, can you burn peat briquettes or not? Yeah, you can burn peat briquettes, yeah. So peat but we're trying to save out these things. Peat briquettes you do realize, are made out of... Hold on. You do realise they come from carbon as well, yeah? Peat briquettes are made out of peat. Yeah. Peat briquettes and are made out of peat. Yes, and peat covers 3% of the earth. And turf is made out of peat, so tell me the difference. it stores more carbon than all... You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk, and you just heard Senator Roisin Garvey debating TD Michael Fitzmorris on Today FM about the so-called turf wars that we've been having this week in politics and government. So it's been discussed a lot as a result of the government's efforts to roll out the smoky coal ban nationwide. But where are we in our efforts to stop extracting peat nationally? Well, I'm joined by Dr. Catherine Farrell, a restoration ecologist at Trinity College Dublin, and Fingal County Councillor David Healy, who also has a history of involvement with Friends of the Irish Environment, an NGO that's been instrumental in protecting our peatlands. Welcome, David and Catherine. Thanks, Cara. Hi. Catherine, we heard massive confusion between T.D. Fitzmaurice and and Senator Garvey trying to clarify what exactly is the difference between peat and briquettes and sod and all these different words we use for turf. Can you Can you clarify for our international listeners and maybe even our national listeners who don't know the differences? Well, they're all just different forms of the same soil. So peat is the soil and peat is the accumulation of organic matter over several thousands of years. It's, it's, it's generally in order to, to burn it, so that it has a high carbon content. In order to burn it, we have to drain the peatland and depending on the shape and the form of the peat that you extract, it gives itself different names. So sod turf would be what you might recognize with someone cutting with a schlawn or with you know a sausage machine. And then the peat briquettes would be something that would be the product of the more industrial type of peat extraction where you mill the peat to a fine crumb. And then you take that milled peat, which is just, just like dust and then compress it um, into a very compacted, briquette. So they're both peat, but they have different levels of compression and different levels of sort of input uh, in terms of extraction. So, but, but they all burn. They all burn. That's the key thing. They're all peat and they all burn. Now, the government has said that they want to ban some of this peat product as part of the smoky coal ban that, that's coming out. David, can you clarify exactly what's on the table and what's not in terms of that legislation? So the, the, the legislation, I suppose, goes back to where we're all familiar you know, with the fact that we used to have appalling smog problems in, in Dublin and in all of our cities and, and towns. And gradually over, over a period from starting in um, 30 years ago, um, <coughs> smoky coal has, has been banned. Uh, and one of the things that's become clear is that sod peat in, in particular um, uh, has, has a similarly bad effect on, on air quality. 
as smoky coal and that that it's necessary to both get rid of smoky coal nationally and and to to tackle the impact of sod peat so the proposal that that's come up is is in relation to the sale just as the ban is on the sale of of smoky coal um it's that that there would be a ban on the the sale of of sod peat so this sod peat, this is the unprocessed version of peat that Catherine referred to as opposed to pre- peat briquettes. I would say this is probably a very small amount of, of turf that's on the market. Am I right? The, su- the suggestion is that certainly the, the, the carbon tax is, is payable on, on sod peat. So we have an estimate from there. And uh, the suggestion is that that's maybe uh, the amount of fuel for 1,000 or 2,000 houses. Now, it is possible that there's some sod peat being sold kind of on a black market basis without paying, you know, that and, and uh, carbon tax. But the, the evidence that we have is a very small amount of, of sod peat is actually being sold. And in general, what we've seen over, over the, the, the last, you know, decades, 50 years, is, is a very steep reduction in the amount of, of sod peat being burnt. And that's for very practical reasons. It's, it's not um, easy to use. Um, it's, it's very unpleasant, uh, dirty fuel for the people using it in the houses. Uh, so people are conscious themselves of the air quality within their own house. And uh, and just the, the, the work and the cost of it is seen by the vast majority of people as, as not worth the effort. So that for those 2,000 or so homes that are reliant on sod peat, what's the alternative for well, they, them? They still have an alternative of burning other solid fuels. So, so uh, smoke less or better to call it low smoke uh, coal, um, uh, properly dried wood. Um, they, they, they'll, they'll still be available. And economically, are they about the same price? Yeah, yeah. The, these things are, are kind of pretty much interesting. So there was massive confusion. I'm sure you both heard in the in the media this week of of different rumors going around about peat briquettes potentially being outlawed, and 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 also too, I think, with the public of confusing this as not necessarily an air pollution issue, David, as you refer to it, but as a climate issue. So, Catherine, in your expertise as a restoration ecologist, is peat more of a climate and biodiversity issue, or do you see it more as an air pollution issue? Well, I think it's it's both really, and it depends on the intensity of use uh, in in houses. And I suppose my concern has always been from the perspective of the loss of biodiversity, and then the emissions to, you know, the atmosphere, and and impacts for, on climate change. So, it's uh, very much from the perspective of who's experiencing it. I mean, we we know that we have a vast array of peatlands in Ireland and, you know, we have very few peatlands that actually remain intact. And this is an issue for us in that we have so many degraded peatlands, which over time have been used largely for uh, fuel production, but then also for, for grazing up in the hills. And what we need to do is we need to stop the, these vast array of peatlands emitting carbon and get them back acting as carbon sinks and also providing areas for the biodiversity that they once held. And I mean, there's one other thing that people often miss out completely, you know, when we're talked about, you know, the, the air pollution side of things, but the emissions to water. And so when you drain peatlands, you get peat silt in water, but also you lose that uh, water holding capacity of the peatlands as well. So there's an, an array of services and 
great things that peatlands provide to us, which we're not actually getting the benefit of by simply just burning them in our fires. We've known for decades that we needed to stop extracting peat to address our climate targets. To what extent is peat still being extracted and peatland still being drained in Ireland? Oh, it's it's very extensive. And I think with the recent uh, activities in Russia and Ukraine, you know, I was driving around the west of Ireland last week and I, I'm, I'm very sure that I noticed a, an increase in terms of the amount of turf that was being cut. And, you know, so that's that's also going to be the reaction to what's going on out there with the increases in prices of oil. But, you know, pretty much every peatland has been affected. And uh, our, a colleague of mine recently highlighted that there's more active, there's more green space in Dublin than there is actually active raised bog in Ireland. So that will tell you the challenge that we have, you know, given that about 20% of our land was originally covered by peat and peat soil. So, you know, what we need to do is develop some national restoration plan. I mean, we have a national peatland strategy, which really just outlines what the key stakeholders are and who they are. But what we really need now is to get, you know, roll up the sleeves and and start engaging with communities to restore. And, you know, the good news is that, you know, there's a huge appetite out there from communities to, to bring their peatlands back to life. And, you know, that's, you know, really evidenced by rural communities out people who used to cut turf and who now want to get out on the bog and re-wet the bog and build dams and get the bog masses back out there and bring back their biodiversity and their, their curlew and their grouse. So there's a huge appetite. So it's really just down to the powers that be to develop and support these people to restore because there are so many benefits that come with it and you know given the scale of degradation that we have we are you know it's i would see it as an opportunity rather than than a negative or uh, something to be despondent about because we have the opportunity to bring them back and the good news is peatlands bounce back when you give them the love and tender care that they require. That's an incredible statistic that you said there, that there's more green space in Dublin than there is raised preserved bogland in in the country. But small-scale producers would say that they're not the problem, that this is a a large-scale extraction issue from the likes of Bordnemona. When I first met you, you used to to actually work for Bordnemona. Do you think they've finally moved beyond peat extraction and into peatland restoration? Oh, absolutely. I mean, peat extraction on the border monocytes ceased uh, a couple of years ago and there's there's no more activity there. And the focus is primarily on re-wetting these degraded peatlands. And, you know, first of all, what you do when you re-wet the peatland, you reduce the carbon emissions there simply by not taking the peat off, but by bringing the vegetation back and keeping the peat wet. So we know in the scientific community that you you just have to keep the peat wet to stop it from breaking down. And then the plants come back and then, you know, all the various species come back as well. So from the Bordnemona side, that is very much tied up now in restoration. And, you know, it's it's really to we we've supported Bordnemona to do that. So the government has 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 uh, awarded money to Bordnemona to restore, 
and really you know we can't just stop there we have to extend that out to all the other uh, peatland sites and to the peatland operators and say right well we need to change how our behaviors and we need to get these peatlands back re-wetted so we'll work with you and to support them to do that rather than just saying stop there's no alternative there's nothing we can do just stop producing peat so we have to work together for to find the solutions because you know you know just stopping isn't the solution we've got to get active and provide them an alternative in terms of fuel or in terms of energy and all that but then work with them to restore and that's where the real magic will happen for carbon, water and for biodiversity. David, what do you think needs to be done to restore our peatlands? I think Catherine has it absolutely there. You know, one of the, the keys is, is working with, with local communities. And, and that's not just kind of a theory. That's something we've, we've seen in, in practice. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with is, is in Abbey Leaks, where the, uh, the, the local bog was, was targeted by Borden Mona for extraction. And about 20 years ago, uh, the, the, the community got together and challenged the Borden Mona's uh, IPC license application, so they needed a license from the EPA to to extract, and and the board had had already you know put in drains in, in the bog a, a couple of decades before, um, but they convinced uh, Board Namona not to, to to go ahead with it, and they took responsibility for it as a local community and to restore it what's now a wonderful local community, and uh, you know restoring in, in an ecological sense, so they're they're both got they have the local benefit. And of course, they're they're part of the the wider global benefit of of locking up the carbon. So we we're seeing restoration projects. Initially, they were focused on the special areas of conservation, on the raised bogs. So they've been going ahead, and they they both the MPWS, but also Quilcher, um got European funding for those restoration projects, um quite so some time ago. And now Bordenamona um has with the in since they they stopped extraction. Um, they've been given and the MPWS is, is helping them with, with the restoration projects on their bogs. So I, I think it's important kind of to recognize that, you know, we've got the extraction bogs um, from Bordenamona and uh, private extractors. Then we've got, got a lot of peatlands which have been attempted to be uh, forested, uh, generally unsuccessfully, but because the, f- the forestry process involves drainage, these have had drains put in and so they're losing peat and they're they're, you know, they they need restoration, and and some of that has started, and then there's there's quite a lot which is un, under agricultural use, and so there there's a challenge for 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 quite a lot of farmers, um, who who've drained peatlands or you know where <coughs> the drainage has happened over time, and and we really need to think about rewetting, uh, quite a bit of that land, and so in a lot of the other European countries where that's kind of the main issue, they're a bit further ahead, um, than than we are. But um, we know that the, the, the value of the peatlands uh, as a carbon sink and a carbon store um, is, is its greatest value. And of course, as, as Catherine was saying, the, the biodiversity uh, value as well. And if we're serious about stopping and reversing biodiversity loss, uh, then the peatlands are an essential part of it. Are the days of putting forests on peatlands now gone because we've accepted that's actually a bad thing to do for the climate? Yeah. I mean, it's a bad thing to do from every, every point of view for the climate. For as Catherine was saying, the water quality for the biodiversity and and economically, it, it was a failure. Yeah, there was a noteworthy investigation recently that found that peat extraction is still largely unregulated, and that even EPA and local authorities don't maintain any form of register of peat companies uh, for commercial purposes. So, 
there's some indication, in fact, that we're actually exporting large volumes of peat for horticultural use, for example. How do we really know the damage that's being done if we're not monitoring these these organizations? The the data is <coughs> sorry. The the data is very is very patchy. I mean, there's been an obligation on local authorities to maintain extractive industry register um, for uh, I think over a, over a decade now. And uh, some local authorities have gone out and taken it quite seriously and, and others have, have nothing on their extractive industry register. And that's supposed to cover both, you know, quarries, mineral extraction, gravel pits, um, but also uh, peat mining and uh, kind of peat milling where they, 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 they scrape it off the top. So there there are questions about the, the quality of, of the data. But one of the things scientifically, of course, that we have now is we've got excellent satellite images. And so Catherine will know a lot more about this than, than I do, but we, we can tell a lot um, from uh, looking at from, from satellites and to seeing what changes are, are happening over time. Catherine, would you agree that the data is missing or do you feel you're able to observe using satellite imagery? I I think we if we really wanted to, we would know where the activity is going on. So the satellite imagery is pretty good and... No, actually, it's it's excellent. And what if when you combine that with ecological knowledge? So when I look at an aerial image, I can see signatures of past land use uh, on on that imagery. So I can see old turf banks that have sort of revegetated. I can see where new turf banks have been opened or old turf banks have been reopened. I can see active peat production, I can see block cut, I can see sod moss, I can see sod turf, I can see milled peat. So, you know, combining the expertise that we have, it's a matter of, of just going and doing that. And there's great work done through our colleagues in uh, Trinity in, in uh, detecting disturbance. So there's definitely the, the expertise, the technologies there, it's 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 to engage with people on it more because people are immediately threatened when you take away their livelihoods and so you know or you you sort of ask them to change and you know so this is always the thing you know when when I started in restoration you know over 25 years ago I was very much focused on the system and on the peatlands and you know getting the water back and doing all the things that you needed to do but over time, I've learned that restoration is 90% a social activity. It's about engagement. It's about identifying who's, who's going to lose out here if we change the behaviours, who's to gain, who's actually gaining through this activity and who's losing out. And, and, and having those conversations and, you know, we've started to do a bit of that through things like the Living Bog, and there's some great stories there from the work done out in Karanagopal where they're starting to bring, you know, certain elements of ecotourism out onto sites where, you know, people who were leading the charge and saying, no, I'll, I'll never stop cutting turf are now actually seeing the value in preserving. And, you know, other activities like the Wild Atlantic Nature Life Project. So, we're starting to engage more, but I would say we need more and more because we don't have the time and we don't have the time to be, you know, sitting back and fighting over what's sod piece and what's milled piece and what's a briquette. You know, we're all in this together. And, 
you know, rather than fighting over the table, it's to sit down and go on site. And people like Michael Fitzmaurice, who I've engaged with a number of times, when you go on site with them, they have the solutions and they will talk to you, you know, plainly and openly about what's at risk here for their communities and for them. And they want to find sustainable solutions uh, for the future. So rather than fighting about this, I'd, I'd rather see more walks out onto the sites, onto the bogs, and how do we resolve this? So, yeah, restoration is 90% social. And, you know, rather than fighting over it, let's, let's put the energy into positive outlooks. Yeah, I think all of us scientists very quickly realize that things are more of a communication problem than a science problem. And we have a long way to go to get people to see peatland as an environmental resource rather than a fuel source. My thanks to Dr. Catherine Farrell and Councillor David Healy for enlightening us on this issue. Up next, Karen Weeks will be telling me about her green and blue life rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. Down to Earth with Amundi an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. But today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the first Irish woman to row solo and unaided across the Atlantic Ocean, finishing her record-breaking feat just last February after more than 80 days of rowing, Dr. Karen Weeks. Hello, Karen. How you doing? How are you? How's things? Hi, my producer is sick to death of me asking whether you had finished your journey yet so I could interview you because I was on the edge of my seat for the whole journey. Welcome home. Ah, oh, thanks very much. I know it's great to be home. Uh, I finished the row on the 24th of February and uh, ever since then, I'm just coming back to reality slowly, slowly, slowly. And all the <laughs> muscles, the muscles have recovered and everything from your journey, I take it. And uh, not really know what's going to take a long time uh, when you're out there for 80 days and you're you're literally just sitting rowing, you know, you're doing very little standing. So the muscles really deplete in the areas that you're not using for rowing. So it's going to take a while for sure. Wow. I'm actually a bit of a sea kayaker myself, though. I have to say that even the little six mile paddle from Bray to Greystones in a headwind can sometimes be too arduous for me. So I've been thinking about you rowing that 3000 miles across the Atlantic. And before we get into talking about your green life, I have to ask, did you have any moments where you felt like giving up during the journey? Uh, sometimes you'd be like, it was very, very hard. There was like a lot of highs and there was a lot of lows as well. Uh, so yeah, sometimes you would be there going, oh my God, like not more storms, not more squalls, not more big seas and, uh, a fleeting moment if you think to yourself if a ship came past now I'd jump on it but I knew (laughs) if a ship did come past I wouldn't jump on it so yeah my head was saying you want to get off this boat but uh, my heart was saying you wouldn't in a fit so uh, realistically in my head yes but really realistically I wouldn't have been at all no there wouldn't have been a chance to that you were rowing from Gran Canaria, Spain, over to Bridgetown, Barbados, and, and I read that you ran into a storm very shortly at the start of your journey. Were, were you surprised by these storms, or was this just a normal occurrence at this time of year? Uh, no, yeah, the, it was a very unique uh, year out at sea. Like the, um, December, January is really the time to go across the Atlantic and uh, sailing boats going east to west, and the old ships back in the day, east to west, and kayakers, or not kayakers, sorry, rowers, 
uh, that's the time you go because the trade winds generally kick in. Uh, so I really, before I left, I was really looking forward to about 2000 miles, definitely 1500 miles of trade winds uh, that generally come in around mid-December, beginning of January. And uh, I, I was hoping I could surf because that's what normal rowers do at that time of year. And you surf your way from mid-Atlantic all the way to uh, Barbados or Antigua or wherever you're finishing in the Caribbean. And uh, this year, the trade winds just did not kick in. So I had northeasterly winds for most of it and northwest winds wave train so that was pushing me south all the time so yeah it was a it was a disappointing that I didn't get all the surf I wanted uh, but uh, it was still so beautiful out there you know it was a harder grind because of the weather conditions but it was really really spectacularly beautiful too. So as someone who studies the climate science what you're saying to me is not all that a surprise because this is the kind of thing we expect in a changing climate did that occur to you at all as you were as you were battling this kind of unseasonable climate? Yeah, I did actually, because I was chatting to my weather router and I said, uh, he kept saying, oh, the models are showing, it's coming around, it's coming around. And every second text was, uh, this doesn't generally happen. <laughs> this doesn't happen before. So, uh, yeah, it sort of, it did go through my mind, all right, for sure. And I'd be interested to see what happens with it next year, you know. It sounds like a scene from Don't Look Up or something. Uh, you know, you, this is not your first endurance challenge. I, I read that you've previously cycled over 6,000 kilometers across Canada. You've circumnavigated Ireland in a kayak. You've you've sailed the Atlantic twice and climbed two of Africa's highest peaks, in, including uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. And all of those environments are being altered by climate change. We've heard about the snows in Kilimanjaro uh, in the past. Have you reflected on that during any of those accomplishments? Uh, Yeah, well, I suppose, you know what, it's interesting because um, I met a guy in Barbados, his name is Philip, and um, he actually rode from Barbados, or sorry, from uh, Grand Canaria to Barbados in 1979. And uh, he's a 68-year-old man now. He's really strong, really fit. But interestingly, he's going with a few guys from England uh, later next year, I think, up through the Northwest Passage. And I was talking to him and I said, geez, like years ago, there wouldn't have been a hope of getting a sailboat, really, or a rowboat through the Northwest Passage. And now that's happening, obviously, you know, so it just shows the depletion of the ice up there as well. Do you think that climate change will make journeys like the ones that you've accomplished harder for future athletes to participate in? I think there's a both. I think there's a sort of two angles of that, like say things like going to the North Pole or Antarctica or uh, going through things like the Northwest Passage. Obviously, that's going to be more accessible because there's more water and it's going to be a slight bit warmer. Um, and then the unpredictable weather conditions. Yeah. For things like, you know, waiting for those trays, like rowing 3000 miles without the help of those trades. It is hard. It, like it really is hard. And you're you're basically your rowboat. My boat was 25 foot long and you uh, obviously if you're on a rowing machine or rowing a boat, you're expecting the two oars to be going uh, in synchronicity. Uh, But when the wave train is coming from the left hand side of you and the winds are coming from there, the boat's tipping obviously side to side to side to side. So your one oar might be in the water at some time, you know, in the bigger seas and the other the other oar could be out of the water. So um, things like that make it more challenging. So, yeah, I think things will be changing, but it'd be interesting to see how it all pans out. Hopefully things will stay as we're used to. (laughs) But that's going to be challenging. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's unlikely. But the reason your adventure came to my attention was was that when you said you were doing it, you were you were trying to raise uh, awareness about several issues. But one of those was the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So what inspired you to focus on those what they call the SDGs? 
Yeah, well, the SDGs uh, 14, we looked at uh, life below water. And um, as you mentioned, like I have done a bit of sailing and kayaking before. And I, I just love the ocean and I love the sea and I love everything about it and the feeling about it. And uh, the aspect of microplastics came to my mind. And, you know, I actually plast a big plastic on the oceans as well. I'd seen so many. Uh, documentaries of birds choking or uh, whales choking or you know all the seals you know just getting uh, swallowing like things like razors even I just thought it was horrific and um, I, I like when I was rowing as I went along I genuinely thought I would see more plastic and I actually didn't see much plastic but I know the microplastics were below me uh, but what I did see was neo neopelagic colonies which are uh, they used to be made up of bamboo. Uh, you know, they'd sw they're sort of like little islands, uh, tiny little islands that would collect rubbish, uh, like going through the Atlantic. And I learned since that they actually travel to the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. So they could go around for years and years and years. And usually they would rot. But now because of plastic, I did see uh, two neopelagic connollys uh, of uh, they were made of bamboo, but the plastic netting and plastic bottles were attached to them and they were just floating around the water, you know. These are these kind of uh, floating islands of plastic that we've heard about. I think one of them is as big as the size of Texas or something. Is that right? I don't know about that. That's very big. Yeah, these were these were small, like these were maybe 10 foot by 10 foot, still big enough, like, but uh, yeah, and like just seeing all that floating around and then another thing I did learn was um down when I went over the mid-Atlantic Ridge which is incredible like the that was only really really dis well it was discovered years ago but it was explored only since 1985 because they had the technology to go down that deep 5,000 meters deep and down there they're even finding microplastics and if you think of all the the weird and wonderful life that's down there like there's sulfur uh, sulfur geysers and there's uh, blind fish and there's these uh, weeds that are larger than a human they're more than 10 foot and it, it just there's so much more exploration down there but I think the really really sad thing about there is that there's microplastics being recorded down there as well. Wow so even in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean you were seeing the impact of, of human activity and human pollution yeah, in places that are only being discovered, you know, really, it's it's uh, it's pretty dramatic, really, isn't it? And back on dry land, what do you think we should be doing to try and address that problem? Uh, well, definitely the uh, up with my placard, down with plastics, you know, I <laughs> suppose, uh, like if we could even, if, if people are using, like even in the gym, you see people using bottles that they they could be using recyclable bottles you know and people on bikes there's so many people doing uh, cycling now and out on paddle boards and everything and if they could buy one bottle that they could just even refill you know even things like that or reusable um coffee cups i think little small steps like that for regular people is could really really help have you made any changes in your own life uh to to kind of address these issues that you saw out on the sea uh, well, do you know what is funny? One of my neighbours texted me the other day and he said, uh, why don't we try and get a gang uh, turning off our electricity at 10 o'clock at night for 10 days? And just to see, you know, does it help a little bit or whatever? So there's a few of us doing that now. And so things like that. And I suppose I'd be open more to seeing what we can do. And I know that the kid, we have a video up actually um, 
and we have a resources page on our she can do 2021.org we are that's our website and there is a page of resources there and i think if people look at that they they could find there's plenty of stuff that's really really interesting uh, about every aspect of the voyage and all my updates are there actually as well uh, within that website but there's a, a video we put together uh, Gary he's making a documentary about the my voyage but he is himself and Kathy Kerwin who's a, an eco activist and uh, they put this video together uh, with kids down in West Cork and uh, they're basically they go along the beaches collect rubbish and then make uh, jewellery out of it and bring it to it within the schools. And it's a it's a very short video. It's like eight minutes long, but genuinely it's fantastic. And to see the kids enthusiasm and how they're getting together and being proactive on the beach is really inspiring. Wow. So in the in the rurals of Kinvara, you're actually shutting off your electricity with a group of people every evening. How's that working? <laughs> <laughs> well there's just a few of us around my, the neighborhood here uh, it's fine you know it's grand it's just you turn it off for an hour at 10 o'clock and uh, you know uh, read a book under candlelight or uh, go for a walk <laughs> the last few nights it's been lovely moon so you can just go out for a walk you know and are you just getting to shut off is it a way of disconnecting from the internet and everything too is there an yeah it is actually it's nice <laughs> <laughs> and it's bringing me back out to the ocean again where you can just uh, everything's just simple I guess yeah, I, I read actually that whenever a fisherman approached your, your boat while you were rowing, that you warned them off of killing these uh, Dorado fish or what other people know as mahi-mahi or, or dolphin fish uh, who were with you for, for much of the journey. How successful were you in protecting your new friends? Uh, you know what? It was a... Uh... I only met two boats the whole way across. So the, it was just the fishermen coming back into Barbados and... Um, it was gas because I had four, I was like an island when I was out there and I had four Dorado following me for the first thousand miles. They were underneath the boat and basically they stay underneath the boat to number one, feed off the goose barnacles that grow underneath the boat. I had to go in and clear off the goose barnacles about every 10 days. Um, that, meant, but, that meant actually diving under the boat? Yeah, you had to get into <sighs> the water and scrape off the thing with the Dorado watching you and hoping the sharks wouldn't come. <laughs> And then um, the second 2,000 miles, I had another different four. I think there were different four. There was two of them I definitely could identify because they had chunks out of their heads. They had scars on their heads. But they literally stayed with me for 2,000 miles. And basically, they stay under your boat for shelter from the sun because the sun is really intense. And then they can go off feeding and come back. And I, they actually, it was really cool to see because one of them would always stay with the boat. The others might head away. And then if I started rowing again or stopped one of those Dorado that were at the boat would slap the water with their bodies. Wow. And I think it was attracting the others, telling them what the story was, because I suppose it would be hard to find me again if I did disappear. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Nature is amazing. It is. You know, astronauts would often say that their their first view of planet Earth from space is the moment that really raised their consciousness about the need for environmental protection. So now that you're back on dry land, has that journey across the Atlantic changed your perspective at all about our planet or our environment? Uh, well, like I, I'm, I've always been aware of what's happening with the environment. And I suppose the thing that it just has taught me, again, the expanse and the beauty and the, the privilege we have of having oceans like the Atlantic Ocean. And what, one thing that I hadn't realized when I was sailing before going across the Atlantic was the, the expanse of the Atlantic allows it to breathe. And uh, once the waves are coming in towards, say, Ireland's west coast or whatever, the, the Atlantic obviously gets boxed in. And that's when the waves and the big waves form. And I, I really 
felt out at sea like the seas could be massive like really 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 big but uh then within hours the thing could be flat cam and that's really i was there going wow this like i couldn't believe it could go from monstrous waves that are crashing down and stuff to being totally totally flat cam and i think it's just because the atlantic had breathing space and all the waves could just run off and you know they had a thousand two thousand miles to play with you know and then um, yeah but we should be privileged and really respect our oceans well my thanks to dr karen weeks for giving us a taste of her green life and blue adventures you can check out more of her journey and some tips on what to do in your own green life at she can do 2021 and that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Russo, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, we'll talk about what happens to your clothes when you're done with them. But until then, stay curious.